Uh, let's jump into our passage this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter number five. We're going to begin reading in the eighth verse. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter number five. And the scripture declares, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high officials, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage is their own owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he, um, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing uh, in his hand. He, he has come, or as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun uh, the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Uh, this morning, I want to uh, preach uh, from the subject fighting affluenza. Fighting affluenza. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so excited to be able to get into your word. I'm thankful for a passage that was inspired thousands of years ago that has so many present day applications. God, allow us to understand the truth then so we can apply the truth now. Allow us to understand the audience then so we can have a better way to appreciate what we can take from it as an audience now. God, help us to see that your word is living and active and help us to see exactly how you're calling us to respond. It's in your name we pray and give thanks. Amen. I want to put a painting on the screen. The painting is called The Money Lender and His Wife, and it is a famous painting by the Renaissance artist Quentin Masseys. In his painting, Masseys clearly illustrates a common dilemma and a conflict that is present in our lives. Here's the conflict, and here's the, the dilemma. Although we are not of this world, meaning once you become a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven, meaning that your allegiance is found in Christ. Once you place your faith in Christ, also it means that your identity is found in Christ, and your allegiance should also be found in Christ. And yes, while those things that I have just mentioned are certainly true, we are not of this world, but here's the truth. We are still living in a sinful world. 
And the sinful world that we live in requires that we choose Christ versus choosing the coins. That's really what the picture is communicating, that in life we have a present opportunity to make a choice. Not just any choice, not just some random choice, not just some silly, insignificant choice. In the text, we have an opportunity to make a choice. When you look at the text, when you look at uh, the actual picture, it's communicating that we have to make an intentional choice versus uh, deciding to pursue God or pursue money. We've got to make a choice this morning. Are we going to focus on Christ or we're going to focus on the coins. If you look at the picture very closely, the money lender sits at home uh, with his measuring scale and a pile of coins in front of him on the table, uh, carefully assessing the value of each coin. At the very same time, his wife is sitting next to him. She is holding a Bible. Uh, She is uh, specifically, actually go back to the other one if you don't mind, specifically looking at uh, the, the coin versus looking at Christ. The, the, the artist, from his own words, is trying to communicate that she is captivated by Christ versus being captivated. She should be captivated by, by Christ, but rather she is being captivated by the coins. Can anybody here this morning identify with that? Where you have had times in your life where you wanted to focus on God, but you were just more distracted by the coins in this world. I think all of us have had those days where you wanted to have a quiet time. You wanted to spend some significant time with the Lord. But that social media timeline has just been a distraction. There's been times we wanted to get up really early to pray, to spend time in God's presence. But that pillow just would not let us go. We've had time where we wanted to spend time growing, uh, making God known and knowing God more, more, more deeply. We've had times in our life where we want to uh, be more committed to building for God's kingdom. But that, that project at work, that project for the class, that project around the house just keeps my attention from being on Christ. And though Massey never visited Athens, Georgia, and while he did not get to live to the year 2019, he was able to paint a picture that is so applicable to us today. In presenting his piece, Massey is making a tremendous point. In this life, hear me now, in this life, if we are not careful, if we are not prayerful, if we are not intentional, we will find ourselves being more captivated by the coins of life rather than being captivated by the Christ of our life. If we're honest... All of us should feel this this tension between uh, wanting to be more dependent on Christ, but also uh, we should feel the the freedom to make the confession that we want a couple more coins. Like Even as your pastor this morning, I need to be honest with you, your pastor would like a few more coins. I'm not going to do anything illegal, unethical, or immoral. But, but I need to be honest that I'm to a place in my life where I desire more. But the question is, is my desire for more the focus of my life or is Christ the focus of my life? Am I so submitted to Christ that if Christ wants to give me more, I'll be satisfied with that. But if Christ wants to take away some, I'll be satisfied with that. If Christ wants to keep me exactly where I am, will I be okay with that? All of us should get to a place to where we can confess, 
Yes, I have a need for grace. I have a need for forgiveness. But hopefully, the hope that we have in our lives is found not in the coins, not in the bank account, not in the title, not in the profession. Hopefully, our greatest hope is found in Jesus Christ. And yes, while our hope is found in Christ, because we're in this world, it is still so easy to be distracted. It's easy to have the mindset, Lord, I want to focus on you, Lord. I want to to be focused on Christ. I want to be focused on the things that matter. But the coins just keep distracting me. Not just one coin uh, that I have been given or one coin uh, that I desire, but even the coins that you've chosen to give other people have a tendency to distract me in my life. For some of us this morning, this coin could be a relationship, it could be a title, it could be an experience, but here's the truth. No matter what the coin is, the coin has the tendency to distract us from Christ. Can anybody this morning be real about the distractions in and through your life? Like, I want to, I want to build God's kingdom, but I want to build that 401k. Just being honest. Like, I, I, want to, I want to spend more time with people who are the least and the less and the left out. But I also want to build relationships with people who can bless my ministry on FCA. Just being honest. Like, I, I, want to, I want to live my life in a way that's sacrificial and open while I'm humble, while I'm doing what God's called me to do. But I also want some time for myself. I want to be able to disconnect. And when you think about it, I, I love this, this tension because this tension gives me an opportunity to be honest about where I am and what God desires for my life. The truth of the matter is, if I'm constantly distracted by the app or the movie or the behavior or the struggle, I need to be honest about it. I need to take it a step further and not just be honest, but I've got to ask God to change my desires so that my behavior will ultimately change. Uh, this past week, we were on spring break, and initially we were planning to go to Great Wolf Lodge, and my kids uh, came to us and said that they wanted to go to Dave & Buster's for one day. Dave & Buster's was cheaper than Great Wolf, so I said, cool. <laughs> Easy, right? Day we got to Dave & Buster's, we got there, and it was, the, uh, it was the day where they had all-you-can-eat wings and unlimited games. And so immediately when I got to the door, I started calculating I was like, oh, this is much cheaper than what I expected. So I was like, thank you, God. You're looking out for your boy, right? <laughs> so so we, we got in there, and we started playing the games. And the kids would play the games for maybe 30 minutes. Then they'd, they'd go back to the table and order wings. And they'd play the games for 30 minutes and go back and order wings. They'd play the games. It was great. Like, it was, it was a fun time. Now, now, many of you guys are new here, and you guys know um, the slimmer version of Thomas Ellis, right? If you had been here about a year ago, there was a bigger version of this guy. And that guy loved some wings, right? This guy has not had chicken, beef, or pork in almost a year. I'm close. But that guy would have taken the opportunity to have all-you-can-eat wings, and that guy would have had the mindset that all-you-can-eat wings means less than 30 or 40 wings is poor stewardship. Seriously, like if you're going, if you're going to be there, you got to be all in, right? But there's a new guy here though, right? There's a, there's a different person here, right? A, my appetite and, and cravings have changed 
because I wanted my body to change. When I was at Dave and Buster's, there was a temptation to eat the wings, but I chose not to eat the wings because I wanted to eat something that was going to bless my body. Nothing wrong with eating wings. This is me talking. Like, don't be like, the pastor said I can't eat no wings. No more. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I am saying the desire to change my body and the desire for things to continue to change produced the willingness for my appetite to ultimately change. That's true for us physically, but it's also true for us spiritually. My brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me that we must get to a place in our lives where we are surrendering our appetites to the Lord. And yes, there will always be temptation. I would be lying if I said if I had everything together and I don't face any temptation. That's not what I'm communicating. But what I'm saying is we are so desperate in need of God's grace that part of the transformation process of the Christian life is me not just confessing my sins, but me uh, surrendering my desires and asking God to change them from the inside out. Maturity this morning is not just acknowledging the struggle. Like there's so many of us who get comfortable acknowledging the struggle. And yes, confession is a part of the process, but confession is not the end of the story. Maturity is not simply confessing the sin or admitting the struggle. Maturity says, I'm going to not just confess my sin, but I'm also going to focus on Christ. Maturity leads me to pursue Christ more passionately than I pursue the gifts. Maturity says, I want to live a life based upon repentance and faith. Repentance meaning I'm turning away from sin, but faith meaning I'm turning to Christ. In our text this morning, the author is specifically addressing the issue of our financial appetite for more money. And in our text, the author gives us Three very solid reasons to fight against an unhealthy appetite for money. First thing we see is a, there's a political reason to fight. The author wants us to struggle with how there's all, uh, there's vanity in money. And the passage begins by showing that there is injustice in this world. Verse 8 says once again, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor, and the violation of justice and righteousness, and do not, be ama- do not be amazed at the matter, for the high officials is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Remember, this is not uh, some liberal hippie speaking about the issues of social justice. This is the scriptures speaking about injustice. This is, the, this is God specifically speaking about the issues of oppression. It's right there in the text. The issues of injustice is right there in the text. And the issues of righteousness. Since God speaks about these issues, we would do well to not just read these issues, but we must do well to focus on how we can participate in the end of any kind of of, of oppression in this world. When you look at it, the reason I use the word political is when you look at it from from the standpoint of communism, right, where states seize control of means or capitalism, where, where people profit at the expense of others. Either one of those things can be bad. Ecclesiastes tells us not to be surprised by injustice because there are people in positions of power who are willing to do things that are unrighteous. We should not be surprised when these things happened. 
But just because God tells us those things are going to happen or are happening, here's what I want you to hear me say this morning. We must not be silent and we must still be engaged in the stopping of any kind of oppression that is, a, that is present in our lives. I do not want you to hear me saying, since God says that there will be oppression, then that gives me a pass to ignore it. Since God says that people in positions of power are going to do things that are unrighteous, then I need to just accept it and not do anything about it. That is not what the text is communicating. The text is not saying you should ignore the abuse of power. I want you to give a, a very practical example. Like how do we, as Christians, deal with uh, the issue of injustice or political power? Like how are we to be engaged in this system? Because once again, we are in this world, but not of this world. So I want to say it this way. If my candidate is currently in office, if my candidate has recently left office, if my candidate has not made it into office, no matter where you find yourself, your candidate's in office, your candidate just left office, or you're praying for your candidate to be in office, I must be more committed to Christ than any candidate. I'm going to say it again. No matter where you find yourself this morning. One of the reasons why I love our church, I'm not going to call anybody out. But we have the most diverse church I've ever been a part of. Not just race, but political conviction. And, and I, I could do it. I'm not going to do it because I don't want to start no fight this morning. <laughs> but I know who voted for who. I do. And it's okay whoever you voted for, as long as your commitment to Christ is always a greater commitment to Christ than it is the candidate. For me personally, when you look at it, it is a reminder of why we vote the way we vote. Verse 9 says, gives a, a, a partial solution to the problem. Verse 9 says, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king or a leader committed to the cultivating of the fields, committed to blessing the fields. Uh, in that day and time, if there was nothing in the field, the people had nothing to eat. The more the field prospered, the more the people prospered. So in the text, it's saying that what, 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 what is a blessing to the land is a king that is committed to having a, a scenario where people are blessed. I love it because it is, it, is a, it is a reminder for me personally that when any time I have an opportunity to vote or to be involved in the political process, I want to do my best to help a person who is a committed believer, a person who is committed to impacting the culture with the values of the kingdom, that's the person who I'm voting for. I'm voting for the person who is going to make the greatest commitment to transforming our culture with the values of God's kingdom. You got to remember when Jesus taught us to pray, how did he teach us to pray? He, he didn't teach us to pray to get our will done in heaven he taught us to pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Go back to Matthew 6, verse 9. It says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like I'm, I'm putting people in positions who want to make a commitment to doing things the way God wants them done on the earth by heaven's standard, not my standard. 
If my standard is the only standard, then I'm going to vote for the person who tells me what I want to hear. I'm going to vote for the person who uh, speaks to a, a, a specific conviction. But if I go to the scriptures and I look at it, I'm going to say, Lord, I want to put the person in a position who's going to make the greatest kingdom decision possible. So when we pray or when we vote or when we invest or when we give, we are doing it in a way that allows God's will to be done on, on earth as it is in heaven. So, so just so we're on the same page, please do not hear me saying that we should expect government to solve our problems. I am not saying that. But I am saying that we can be involved in the political process and we can place people with Christian values and Christian commitments in a position where they can make positive changes based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Always understanding, though, that government will never solve our greatest issues and needs. That's why we always want to appeal to Isaiah chapter number 9, verses 6 through 7. It says, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That passage is reminding us of the promise that we will one day have Jesus. So first we have a political reason, but secondly, we have a personal reason to fight. In the previous section, the author focused on wealth on a national scale, but then he transitions in verse number 10 to focus on it from a personal scale. Verse 10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Uh, here we have all uh, heard, the, the most of us have heard the truth or have heard the phrase, no matter how much money you have, you will never be satisfied. Um, most of us have heard of the great or the very wealthy uh, Rockefeller family. John Rockefeller at the time uh, when this quote was given was the richest man in the world. He was, um, his, his, pe people have tried to quantify his wealth um, with inflation and stuff. And you really, you really just can't do it because he was that wealthy. But at the height of his wealth, at the height of his riches, someone asked him, uh, how much is enough? And he famously said, just a little bit more. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. How, how big is, how big, is a, a big enough house? Just a little bit bigger. How much, is a, how much nicer do you want your car? Just a little bit nicer. How much more do you want your body to change? Just a little bit more. And it's easy for us to be in this position where we always want just a little bit more rather than being satisfied with what God has given us. There's an author, I got the, the title Affluenza from Jessie O'Neill. She addresses uh, affluenza as an unhealthy relationship with money or an unhealthy pursuit of money. Because most Americans, we have decided, we have concluded that success is directly connected to how much money you have. If we're honest, I don't think there's a person in here, apart from Christ, who would say that the less money you have, there's more potential for success in your life. I think that all of us would assume that the more money you have, the more successful you really are in life. 
Like the more toys you have, the more things you acquire, the more, the more shiny things you have to point to. It's easy for us to look at that as the American dream and the American uh, standard for success. The reality of it is the appetite for money can never buy me satisfaction. That's why it's easy for us to be frustrated when we can't acquire more stuff. Or also be frustrated when we get stuff uh, by means of going into debt and robbing and stealing and killing to get what we want. Ultimately, because those things never satisfy. What the text invites us to do is rather than always craving more, we are invited to be happy with less and be satisfied with what God has given us. The text really does challenge us to not have a divided heart because if we have a divided heart, we will be uh, under uh, a, a dangerous uh, position of being impacted by affluenza. Verse 11 says, once again, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with their eyes? Basically, it's saying the more money you get, the more people are going to just take your money, right? Um, we, have, we have four kids, and thank God the Lord has blessed me with, uh, with the means and the resources to take care of my kids. But it's amazing to me that it's like the more money we get in the house, the more we spend at Walmart and Trader Joe's and Publix. The more the vacation goes up, the more the expenses go up. So the more we get, really, the more we're spending as well. When you look at it, verse 12 says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The passage is reminding us that no matter how much money you have, it will not let you sleep or it will not help you with sleep. It may help you buy something. It may help you go somewhere, but it will not give you rest. Verse 13 says, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner uh, to his hurt. And those riches were lost in bad ventures. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. One of the, uh, I, I really enjoy watching those uh, ESPN 30 for 30 shows. And one of the best ones I've, I've ever seen is uh, the one called Broke. It is uh, one that chronicles uh, professional athletes and how they uh, very soon after uh, they get done with their professional careers, they end up uh, being broke. According to an article on Sports Illustrated, 60% of former NBA players are broke within five years of retirement. What's even worse, by, the, by two years after retirement, 78% of NFL players are bankrupt. And when we hear those numbers, it's startling. It's startling. Like, how could... How could those guys or girls blow that kind of money? Like, how could they put themselves in a position to acquire so much and be poor stewards of it? The truth is, what, you, what we see on ESPN 30 for 30 for Broke is really a reflection of our culture. Like, the guy talking struggles with living, below, living above my means. The issue with the, with the guys on the show is that they were living above their means. It doesn't matter if you make a million dollars a year or $20,000 a year. If you're living above your means, you're putting yourself in a position to be broke. In the text, uh, Solomon is able to speak to the fact that, yes, it's easy to, to, to have wealth, but if you are mismanaging your wealth, if you are not putting yourself in a position to be blessed by your wealth, you will ultimately end up losing all of your wealth. Verse 15 continues, it says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked he came, and he shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil, 
Just as he came, so, he, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? The language of these verses are really remind us of Job 121. It says, naked from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy verse 6 speaks to it. It says, for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world. Reality of it is you cannot take it with you. I was, um, I was watching, not watching, I was online the other day and one of the, um, one of the new phenomenons uh, for, for upwardly mobile people is to be buried uh, in their jewelry. And I saw one guy, he had this 1940 Harley Davidson and he was buried in the Harley. I saw one guy, he had this Mercedes McLaren, he was buried in the McLaren, right? In reality, they're trying to take it with them, but they can't. There's a, there's a quote by Simon Dennison. He speaks about death. Uh, Simon was a, he was a very successful um, golfer and um, very uh, outstanding athlete. And um, someone asked him, hey, are you, are you afraid of anything? And he says, I'm in a position now where I can pretty much do as I want. But dying would not be a good thing because in dying, I know I can no longer do what I want. He got to a place where he understood that money was good, but money could not prolong and money could not secure his life. Martin Luther says it this way. He says, I shall forsake my riches when I die, so I might as well forsake them while I live. Ecclesiastes 5.17, continuing through the passage, says, Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. The verse literally tells us that the fruit of his unhealthy relationship with money is anger, sickness, and vexation. I want to put a quote on the screen. It says, from, from Derek Kittner, it says, If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. It is the emptiness it leaves. The passage is communicating to us that, that this unhealthy pursuit of money, that this unhealthy pursuit of, of an excessive lifestyle, catch this, will leave us angry and vexed. As I was reading the text, I had to ask myself the question, like, Thomas, like, when is the last time you got really, really angry? Was it about something that was a kingdom issue? Or was it something that was connected to greed and money? Like the last time me and my wife had an argument, I've got, I've got to ask myself this question. Like, was I arguing with her about money? Was I angry with her about money? With my kids, the last time I got short with my kids, did I, did I, did I yell at them for throwing a ball in the house and potentially busting the window because I care about their health? Or do I care about paying for that window? And when you think about it, it's easy for me to be so concerned about the money that I'm missing an opportunity to see that an unhealthy obsession with money leads to anger, sickness, and vexation. So first, we have a political reason. Third, uh, secondly, we have a uh, personal reason. And lastly, we have what I consider a powerful reason. When you read the end of Ecclesiastes 5, hopefully the idea of the mindset is, Lord, there's got to be a better way to live than this. That's why 1 Corinthians 6.17 6, says, As for the rich in this present age, 
Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Ecclesiastes 5.18 ends this way. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the days of his life that God has given him for this is his life. I love verse 18 because it is a reminder of a balanced perspective. The passage has already told us of the vanity of excess, but now it's telling us that we can enjoy a good and fitting life. It's telling us that we can enjoy something that is, a, that is appropriate. I want you to catch this. Yes, our time here on earth is short. Yes, our time here on earth is fleeting. Yes, our days here on earth are passing away. But here's the truth. The days that you have been given are days where God wants you to experience joy. The days that you've been given are days where God wants you to be blessed. The days that you have been given, God wants you to not just, quote unquote, live your best life, but God wants you to live a life that is marked by joy and abundance connected to Christ. Uh, early in the passage, the, when the author is addressing the issue of our focus on money, there's not much mention of God. When you get to verses 18 through 20, there's a lot of focus turned back to the Lord. Verse 19 says, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Catch this early in the passage. It lists some reasons why we need to fight against the unhealthy accumulation of wealth. Now we are being explicitly told how we can enjoy the wealth and the gift that comes from God. Catch this. It almost sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. But when you recognize that both things come from God, catch this. The gift comes from God, but the opportunity to enjoy it is also connected to God. When you marry those two things together, you are able to enjoy what God has given you. When you're able to hold things with an open hand and not being held hostage by them, when, you are, when you're able to be a blessing to others, when you're able to understand that I'm not going to just thank God, um, I'm not going to just thank him for the gift, but I'm also going to thank him for the opportunity to enjoy the gift, then I will get to a place in my life where I have the gift and also the giver of the gift. Well, I can experience joy that comes from God giving me the gift, but I want to be able to truly enjoy any gift that God has given me. So here, here's the truth. It's useless to worship the gift without honoring and worshiping the giver. The ability to enjoy wealth or family or friendship or food or sex or any other gift that God gives you is connected to the reality that the Lord wants you to enjoy it a certain way. And the Lord wants you to know that satisfaction doesn't come in the box. Uh, I remember one of my, one of my best Christmases. I, I was hoping my dad was going to be here this morning. Uh, one of my best Christmases, he bought me this uh, G.I. Joe uh, Rolling Thunder set. And um, I can remember uh, my dad is super cool, very relaxed, very laid back. And I can remember him staying up to two or three o'clock in the morning 
uh, trying to put together uh, the, the, the set. I mean, it was massive, right? I can remember a couple, couple four-letter words mentioned throughout the process. Where he, was a little, he was a little frustrated. He was a little upset. And I can remember him being so, so thankful to be finally done with the G.I. Joe Rolling Thunder set. Only to find out that the batteries that it needed were sold separately. <laughs> he, he was so frustrated because the batteries were not in the box. The tour was there, it was complete, it was done, but we couldn't really enjoy it to its fullest until we put the batteries inside of it. I want to say something and I'm done this morning. In life, God will give you a marriage, but satisfaction is sold separately. God will give you a job, but satisfaction is sold separately. God will allow you to get the house or renovate the house, but the satisfaction that you desire will always come separately. So in Ecclesiastes 5, God is calling us to live in, a such, and live in such a way where we are connected to him and we are able to enjoy the gifts that God has given us through Christ. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this very closely. I want you to listen very closely. It's kind of hard to understand, but I think it's going to bless you. There's an English writer by the name of George Hubert, and he wrote about the power of enjoyment. He wrote something called The Pulley. In it, he began by saying that when God first made man, he took his glass and he poured out as much blessings as he could. Riches and beauty and wisdom and honor and pleasure. But when the glass was almost empty, he decided to stop. When, almost, when it was almost empty, God made it stay, perceiving that alone of all of his treasures rest at the bottom would lay. In other words, the one gift that God decided not to grant was rest or perhaps satisfaction. He then says, for if I should, said he, bestow this jewel on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me. In wisdom and love, God thus created us with a, with a duality where we can be rich and be weary. So in being weary, we are always turning our hearts and our minds back to God. The question that we've got to ask ourselves is, have we gotten weary to the place where we have turned our hearts and our minds back to God? I want you to put the, uh, the second photo back on the screen as we close. In Massey's painting, it's very easy to miss a very striking detail. We know very clearly that Massey and his wife are, vo- are both focused on the coin. They are both focused on turning away from God. They are both focused on what is temporal rather than eternal. But on the table between them, there is a little circle mirror, which reflects a little scene which takes place just outside the frame. If you look at it closely, and you guys in the back probably can't see it, you can Google it. If you look at it very closely, there is a cross in the window. And there's also a man's face pointing to the cross and reaching out to the cross. It's very familiar because ultimately this is Massey. Massey is saying, did you see this? Massey is here and he's reaching out to the cross. Subliminally, he's saying that his greatest need is not found 
in the coins, he's saying his greatest need is found in Christ. And as believers, I hope and pray we get to a place where we can understand that in the midst of the coins, in the midst of the chaos, our greatest need will always be Christ. Kathy, you can come on back up. We're going to get ready to close. A couple of points of application, and I'll be done this morning. Number one, when we think about the, the passage and we think about the issue of, of oppression and justice or even political affiliation, the question that I want to ask you is, how am I aligning myself? Okay? I will never tell you how to vote. I will never tell you uh, what candidate, um, who you should go with. I will never tell you what to do. But I will tell you, as a believer, you are number one called to align yourself with Christ first. Here's what this means. I want to make this super, super, super practical. Okay? That means if the candidate that I do not want says or does something that supports Christ, I'm going to affirm that. I may, there may be 99 other things that I don't care about, that, that I, I disagree with. But when they say or do something, I'm going to affirm because it is Christ. On the other side, if my candidate who I love and care for and who I am you know, committed to um, posting on Facebook about, if that person says something that does not align himself with Christ, I'm going to be open and honest about it. And I'm not going to try to cover up apparent sin. We've got to get to a place in our life where Christ is always more important than the candidate. Secondly, question is, what makes me angry? I was, um, I was convicted the other day when I saw the, um, the tragedy in New Zealand. I saw people who were murdered, people who were killed. I'm going to say it. My initial response was not as loving because my thought went to them being Muslim. Rather than understanding that, that these are people who Christ desires. These are people who Christ desires a relationship with. Like my heart shouldn't break more for a Christian martyr than those people who were killed. I should be more moved by, by someone who, who has confessed Christ being murdered than I am somebody who is innocently still being murdered. And when I think about it, like I've got to, I got to re- reorient my heart to what God says is important. And I cannot be in this little Christian bubble where I'm just concerned about the current contemporary Christian issues and I'm ignoring issues that are near and dear to the heart of God. Lastly, after we consider how I align myself and what makes me angry, lastly, I've got to ask the question, where do I find my satisfaction? Okay? I love life. God has blessed us with so many wonderful things. Okay? But I will not be able to enjoy those things to their fullest capacity apart from God. My marriage, my house, my career, my kids, all of those things are gifts from God, but those are gifts that must be enjoyed with God. We pray for us. Father, I thank you for blessing us with this time. I know we've gone over today, um, God, but I pray that you would speak to us and that you would continue to help us to grow that you will continue to help us to wrestle with this message. Um, God, I thank you for uh, this opportunity to, res- to sing in response. God, as we sing 
And as we get ready to close, God, I pray that we will continue to allow the truth of your word to penetrate our hearts. God, it is easy for me to ignore things that just are not on my radar. God, but help me to get to a place, God, where my anger is a righteous anger. And the things that break your heart, God, help them to break mine. And the things that you celebrate, God, help me to celebrate. God, no matter what you've given us, God, I pray that we would be willing to, to enjoy them in a way that brings you into the conversation, that allows you to participate, and that allows us ultimately to worship you. God, we thank you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.